The five shortlisted artists for the 2023 Sobe Art Award, Canada's preeminent prize for contemporary visual artists, were recently announced by the National Gallery of Canada and the Sobe Art Foundation. Following artist Divya Mera's win in 2022, this year's $100,000 winning artist will be announced in November. The 2023 Sobe Art Award finalists from East to West are Seamus Gallagher of The Atlantic, Anahita Narazi of Quebec, Michelle Pearson Clark of Ontario, Kablusiak of the Prairies in the North, and Gabrielle Lorandel Hill of the West Coast and Yukon. Bernard Doucette, the Sobe Art Foundation's executive director, reflects in this release that the Sobeys, quote, strive to provide an experience and recognition that supports these artists in the way that is most meaningful to them, allowing them to focus their energy on their art. He also extends his, quote, heartfelt gratitude to the 2023 Sobe Art Award jury for their leadership and hard work. Jonathan Shaughnessy, the NGC's Director of Curatorial Initiatives and Chair of the 2023 Sobe Award jury, notes, quote, The work of the five finalists presents views on many urgent matters of our time. We all stand to gain from their perspectives and are propelled through a lens attuned to creativity, aesthetics, and innovation. The five shortlisted artists will be on view in an exhibition at the NGC until March 3rd, 2024. Welcome to Momus the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. So, Sky, following the past three seasons where I've been really no, steering the episodes, ship, seasons. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get carried away. <laughs> but yes, the last three episodes, you've really been carrying the torch. I, I, I'll admit. <laughs> In a weekend at Bernie's situation over here, and <laughs> yeah, exactly. I want everyone to know. You're halfway across the country with our podcast. Um, <laughs> Following the past three episodes where I've been steering the conversation, I'm really excited that you're coming in here with a guest that um, is bringing a brightness to a the brightness. show. It's true. Yeah, I'm really thrilled um, to be sauntering back in with this vibrant guest, Kate Wolf, um, who's a founding editor of the LA Review of Books and an active and much admired critic across the board. Um, kind of a Swiss army knife of a critic, really, um, but very much ensconced in the LA community there. Mm-hmm. And she wrote something recently for Momus. It was a text I really loved called Working It that was about sex work and art, uh, featuring books by Lizzie Borden and Sofia Giovanetti. Yeah, I, I was so um, indebted to Catherine Wagley for recommending Kate work with us. And um, Catherine approached her. We were so happy when Kate came with the sort of like multi-book review um, mm. on sex work and contemporary art. And it begins so strongly. I really, I'm so attached to a strong intro, as mm-hmm. probably every editor is, and um, and every reader. Um, but she starts with roasting Jerry Saltz. Do you remember this? Over his yes. misogynistic review of Andrea Frazier's infamous sex tape piece. And I just, I just want to say, bless Kate. <laughs> oh my God! And fuck <laughs> Jerry <more>. Saltz. <laughs> Both in the in the same breath. What was it that he said? It was just something so so embarrassing for him it sure was i have to look up. it up we have to say what he said <laughs> okay here it is so here's kate i'm quoting 
The critic Jerry Saltz, for instance, opined on Artnet that Fraser was in, quote, excellent shape for a 39-year-old. But that, I know, let's just take a breath, but that the sex seemed, quote, stilted and rote. The blowjob she gave, on the other hand, looked, quote, attentive. Jerry, <laughs> if you're listening, <laughs> shut your trap. <laughs> just shut it. Get, Nobody needs to hear from lost. you anymore, dude. Get right out of here. <laughs> what a Anyways, what a sidetrack, but like honestly, that just blows my mind. Yeah, it does. Um uh so <laughs> let's get away from the fuck Jerry Salts and to the blessed Kate Wolf. Yes. What did she choose for this framework of the podcast? Because she runs her own podcast too. Oh my god, that's right. I've even forgotten to mention she has like a very robust podcast. <laughs> for the LA Review of Books that she's putting out weekly. Uh, oh, my not, God. Not monthly or, you know, seasonally as we do. So all <laughs> respect, all respect, because that is a huge lift. Absolutely. So she brought for us, within the framework of this season's uh, conversations with writers about a meaningful text, um, she brought us this first essay from an iconic LA architecture critic, Rainer Bannum. And it's the first essay of his book called Los Angeles, The Architecture of Four Ecologies. So Kate first read this in college. Right. I really like that as a response to the invitation, because when we email people, we say, you know, it's very open, like, bring us a text that's meaningful to you. It can be formative or it made you angry, you know, really sky's the limit. And I like that she brought in a school text and that it's not necessarily a school text that she continues to hold entirely dear. Yeah, I love it for both of those things. It's an essay that definitely became sort of foundational for her approach to criticism um, in terms of how Bannum, you know, meets the city on its own terms and doesn't just rip it apart as a failure, which um, Kate identifies as one of his strengths. But, but then also his approach as a kind of early postmodernist, I guess you could say, in terms of like the holistic approach to architecture, including the history of the city, you know, the idiosyncrasies of its people, um, the kind of contextual texture that's both like low and high, um, mm -hmm. and yet highly specific to where it is, right? This kind of writing um, that he was promoting, in it, this book was put out in 1971, mm -hmm. um, is definitely uh, an influencer. You can see it in her writing. Mm -hmm. um, but then you're right, she also goes on to have ample criticism for, for, for this essay as well. Yeah, and she brings in Peter Plagans, who, you know, there's also issues there. But um, mm. I thought it was really striking that she mentioned that in Peter Plagans' sort of send-up of this text, he, he says, like, it's nice for um, Rainer that he doesn't have to live in L.A., you know? <laughs> yeah, that classic <laughs> Like, it's thing. fine to find it great, but... Try living here. Um, yeah. And yeah, I thought that was a really nice kind of texture to this interview, having that kind of like critic on critic on critic. And yeah. then that came out, out also um, with you and Kate talking kind of editor to editor, which I thought was some really nice moments mm. that I'm excited to share with listeners. Mm -hmm. There's also a really great rapid fire session 
she, um, she yeah, yeah, she really brought it. She was very forthright and kind of seemed amused by the prospect, which is what what we can only hope for. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We cover drugs, Jennifer Aniston, TMZ, self soothing, Natalia <laughs> Ginsburg. It's really all in there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, let's get to it. This is Sky Gooden talking to Kate Wolf, who begins with a reading from Rainer Banham's Los Angeles, The Architecture of Four Ecologies, published in 1971. A city 70 square miles, but rarely 70 years deep apart from a small downtown, not yet two centuries old, and a few other pockets of ancientry, Los Angeles is instant architecture in an instant townscape. Most of its buildings are the first and only structures on their particular parcels of land. They are couched in a dozen different styles, most of them imported, exploited, and ruined within living memory. Yet the city has a comprehensible, even consistent quality to its built form, unified enough to rank as a fit subject for a historical monograph. Historical monograph? Can such an old-world, academic, and precedent-laden concept claim to embrace so unprecedented a human phenomena as the city of Our Lady Queen of the Angels of Porchuncula, otherwise known as Internal Combustion City, Surferbia, Smogville, Aerospace City, Systems Land, the Dream Factory of the Western World? It's a poor historian who finds any human artifact alien to his professional capacities, a poorer one who cannot find new bottles for new wine. In any case, the new wine of Angelino architecture has already been decanted into one of the older types of historical bottles with success that I will not even try to emulate. Architecture in Southern California by David Gebhardt and Robert Winter is a model version of the classical type of architectural gazetteer, erudite, accurate, clear, well-mapped, pocket-sized. No student of the architecture of Los Angeles can afford to stir out of doors without it, but there is no need to try to write it again. All I wish to do here is to record my profound and fundamental debt to the authors and echo their admission of even more fundamental indebtedness to Esther McCoy and her one-woman crusade to get Southern California's modern architectural history recorded and its monuments appreciated. Yet, even the professed intention of Gebhardt and Winter to cover a broad cross-section of the varieties of Angelino architecture is inhibited by the relatively conventional implicit definition of architecture accepted by these open-minded observers. Their spectrum includes neither hamburger bars and other pop ephemerate at one extreme, nor freeway structures and other civil engineering at the other. However, both are as crucial to the human ecologies and built environments of Los Angeles as are dated works in classified styles by named architects. In order to accommodate such extremes, the chapters that follow will have to deviate from accepted norms for architectural histories of cities. What I have aimed to do is present the architecture, in a fairly conventional sense of the word, within the topographical and historical context of the total artifact that constitutes Greater Los Angeles, because it is this double context that binds the polymorphous architectures into a comprehensible unity that cannot often be discerned by comparing monument with monument out of context. So when most observers report monotony, not unity, and within that monotony, confusion rather than variety, this is usually because the context has escaped them, one, and it has escaped them because it is unique, like all the best unities, and without any handy terms of comparison. 
It is difficult to register the total artifact as a distinctive human construct because there is nothing else with which to compare it, and thus no class into which it may be pigeonholed. And we historians are too prone to behave like Socrates and Paul Valery's Epilinos, to reject the inscrutable, to hurl the unknown into the ocean. How then to bridge this gap of comparability? One can most properly begin by learning the local language, and the language of design, architecture, and urbanism in Los Angeles is the language of movement. Mobility outweighs monumentality there to a unique degree, as Richard Austin Smith pointed out in a justly famous article in 1965, and the city will never be fully understood by those who cannot move fluently through its diffuse urban texture, cannot go with the flow of its unprecedented life. So, like earlier generations of English intellectuals who taught themselves Italian in order to read Dante in the original, I learned to drive in order to read Los Angeles in the original. But whereas knowledge of Dante's tongue could serve in reading other Italian texts, full command of Angelino dynamics qualifies one only to read Los Angeles, the uniquely mobile metropolis. Again, that word uniquely. I make no apology for it. The splendors and miseries of Los Angeles the graces and grotesqueries appear to me as unrepeatable as they are unprecedented. I share neither the optimism of those who see Los Angeles as the prototype of all future cities, nor the gloom of those who see it as a harbinger of universal urban doom. Once the history of the city is brought under review, it is immediately apparent that no city has ever been produced by such an extraordinary mixture of geography, climate, economics, demography, mechanics, and culture, nor is it likely that an even remotely similar mixture will ever occur again. The interaction of these factors needs to be kept in constant historical view. And since it is manifestly dangerous to face backwards while at the steering wheel, the common metaphor of history as the rear view mirror of civilization seems necessary, as well as apt in any study of Los Angeles. First observe an oddity in the yellow pages of the local phone books. Many firms list in the same size, type, and without comment, branches in Hawaii, New Zealand, and Australia. This is neither a picturesque curiosity nor commercial bragging. It is simply the next natural place to have branches, a continuation of the great westward groundswell of population that brought the Angelinos to the Pacific shore in the first place, a groundswell that can still be felt throughout the life of the city. Los Angeles looks naturally to the sunset, which can be stunningly handsome, and named one of its great boulevards after that favorite evening view. But if the eye follows the sun, westward migration cannot. The Pacific beaches are where young men stop going west, where the great waves of agrarian migration from Europe and the Middle West broke in a surf of fulfilled and frustrated hopes. The strength and nature of this westward flow needs to be understood. It underlies the differences of mind between Los Angeles and its sister metropolis to the north. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks. So let's let's start at the start. When did you first read this? How did this text find you? So I was in college um, and I was writing a paper on the freeways of Los Angeles. And that's where I found... Rainer Banham's book because he has one of the ecologies that he describes is the freeway system. So that's the first place I had ever really seen 
any discussion of, of the freeways in Los Angeles, and certainly a positive discussion of them, because he really sees the freeways as a triumph, and also he sees the structure of the freeway in aesthetic terms, which is how I has always seen it as a child. I mean, just, I guess, growing up in L.A. and seeing these overpasses and these amazing sculptural structures and these interlocking um freeway on ramps and off ramps i you know there's there is some kind of amazing design feat about it and it they are they can be even though they're monstrous they can be so beautiful um so i don't think i had ever seen la described in that way before and certainly the concept of the book was really surprising to me the pictures you know there's there's so much vernacular signage and architecture we were reading a lot of a way more critical text at the time uh, of Los mm. Angeles and more certainly ones that this describe them in more kind of apocalyptic terms. I also think something about the whimsical quality of this book stuck out. To me, it wasn't a signed reading, but something about the celebration of these forms and the celebration of the city was kind of in direct opposition to uh, other things I was reading at yeah. that time. And and even, I, you know, I have to say what I appreciate most now, there's, it's true, Rainer Banham's book is, has a very boosterish element and it can seem completely ridiculous. Um, <laughs> you know, on reading it now, a lot of things I don't agree with at all. I think it really misses the point a ton. Uh, but at that time, I think someone deciding to really look at the city on its own terms and not just rip it apart as a as a failure. I mean, first and foremost, that mm-hmm. is important to me um, critically that as opposed to trying to understand something, you know, from some kind of universal subjectivity, you you try to get down to its level and see how it works on its own terms. That's right. Unrepeatable and unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Um a little poking around on my part, because I, I wasn't familiar with um, Banham before, um, showed that he was a sort of holistic thinker and maybe in his own way very much ahead of the times. I can understand why he'd be embedded, for instance, in a POMO class, right? Right. Because he's bringing a kind of intersectionality to design and pop culture and art history and architecture. And yeah, I think thinking about sort of how the many parts inform the whole, um, both mechanically, right? Like, I guess he was a real enthusiast for talking about structure and functionality and architecture being very much yoked, things like this, right, which I imagine were were probably pretty fresh in the late 60s or early 70s. Um, how do you understand his legacy now? And, and yeah, how unknown or known even is he as an entity in, in the circles that you're running in? I think that he is very known, and I think that he is very... I mean, I... I so as I was um, kind of revisiting the book, I read an amazing Peter Plagan's takedown that was published in Art Forum about the same time as uh, Los okay. Angeles. The Architecture of Poor Ecologies was published uh, in 1971. Mm. Yes, there's some. I, I would even love to read some of these great lines that Plagan's has about Banham. Yes, but, <laughs> yes, and I, I will. I can. Um, but I because I think there's a lot of great lines in Banham, and they produced an an equally uh, very amusing uh, takedown. But I think he's beloved, (laughs) and I think his legacy is twofold. There's, you know, his enthusiasm for vernacular, everyday, either architecture or 
you know, it's much more, it's beyond architecture. You know, it's that the freeways are art, cars are art, hamburgers mm -hmm. are art, you know, that <laughs> him kind of seeing these things t as readable, yeah, semantical, um, I think is a, for any critic, is a really important um, legacy, that it's not just about, yeah. you know, what is being presented um, as 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 more elevated, but there's a whole world to kind of read and understand and relate to critically. I think a lot of the work that I'm most interested in that is art really addresses everyday life more than than not, you know, more than kind of abstract forms. I mm -hmm. think it embraces the everyday. So his his uh, openness to kind of drive the whole city and take that in and to look at everything and be putting everything in context, I think is really important and, and trying to make some unity. Um, also just his inventiveness in terms of form and structure, I think is an amazing legacy Agreed. that, you know, he needed to yeah. tell the story of Los Angeles in his own way. And he made his own form to do that. That was not just a kind of architectural, dry architectural history that was way more dynamic um, and even yes. the, the way the book's laid out, the pic, you know, there's some, these funny pictures that I'm sure that, you know, he took a lot of them, the maps, you know, it's a, it's a really dynamic book in that way. So I think yeah. that seems like incredibly important still to not take accepted forms, to always be searching for the form that will be best for what you want to write about. That's right. Find new uh -huh. bottles for new wine. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I love that line. I think that's a great line. And yeah, I, I guess, you know, I was wondering, is this really criticism? Because I think he's pitching it more as history, but it's pretty light on the history. And it does seem much more to me like kind of popular criticism. He is bringing in not just his personal reaction, but there's a, there's a bit of history involved. And, it, and it's also very amusing. It's really fun to read. Yes. And I think part of what lends it that funness is his, let's say, freedom with imagery, like the idea of like a wave breaking on the, you know, the coast, essentially of the Pacific after being drawn out over across the Midwest. He talks about sort of social mobility, or in this case, migration with a kind of lyricism that is unusual to architecture writing. And I gather he doesn't sit neatly within an architectural um, uh, discourse anyways, right? Like there is a kind of porousness or a bleeding edge to how he's approaching architecture itself. Do, do you slot him in into a, an architectural discourse or do you see him sitting somewhere else culturally? Um, I would say, yeah, probably more in, in terms of ar architectural discourse. Um, but that's the thing mm -hmm. is that it's not, the book isn't so bogged down in jargon or inscrutable ideas that anyone couldn't read it. And, and I guess that's why it does seem like more of a work of popular criticism to me. I mean, you'd have to have some interest yeah. in Los Angeles or Los Angeles architecture to pick it up, but uh, it, it's very yeah. accessible. I mean, at the risk of getting you to to quote Peter Plagans, I am oh, curious, yeah. like, what what was the thrust of that criticism that this this maybe this book in particular was met with? Oh, yes. Okay, well, some really great lines. He says, this is, this is kind of talking about Bantam's boosterism. He said, converts worship LA because of one, the 60s boom. Every man's consumerist dreams come true. Two, omnipresent pop chic. 
It's the so bad, it's good syndrome. Living Warhol's life without the bother of that stupid silver studio. A local artist said he liked LA because of a certain raw energy or nostalgia for the old LA of Raymond Chandler, the Brown Derby, Gilmore Stadium, the P car, and lunches at Clifton's Cafeteria among the fake waterfalls and colored lights. Bannum understandably accepts these chestnuts, but swallows them whole. Four Ecologies contains a drive-in bibliography, cute and incomplete, to delude himself that he has genuine insight. But within the total artifact, Mm -hmm. he's mistaken salient limbs for the trunk, overestimated branches, freedom through automobiles, Mm -hmm. and ignored other sources of capital until we're left with a fattened, highfalutin Taurus brochure. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) there's there's, there's so much more good stuff. Um, But yes, I mean, he's, he's totally, you know, he's so, he does swallow a lot whole, you know, the way he's talking about the freeways, um, he's pretty generous in saying there's some palimpsest that they're just a, a version of what has already been laid by other people. I don't think he takes a very, you know, sharp look at the actual facts of how the freeway system started or, you know, any of the probably nefarious mm. circumstances of it. He, the, the kind of like, there's a very like, oh, well, yes, the smog, it's certainly better than it was. You know, he doesn't allow for, as Plagans points out, the fact that this like architecture of mobility is not universal. Um, many people in LA mm. don't have enough money to have cars, so they have to take the bus and the public transit sucks. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. sure, it's, mm-hmm. it, there's definitely a, a very presumptuous uh, aspect to the book that does not allow for much discussion of class or race. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there's kind of, yes, uh, at all, at all. And I, you know, I, there are, and there are aspects, I mean, and again, that's what I'm saying. That's the double-edged sword of the book to me. and, And maybe that's a part of my personality is that because LA is so derided, it's like, it's often either, you know, it's like, boosted or derided. So someone who is coming at it, wanting to understand it more on its own terms and appreciate it, of course, is attractive. Um, But then his kind of actual blinders to the reality of how unfortunate the city can be and how, you know, completely backwards it can be for someone that doesn't have certain freedoms. I think especially looking at over now, it's glaring how yeah. how much he's kind yeah. of assuming who this reader of the city would even be. I mean, it's like for who is it enjoyable, not for a huge percentage of the population. And and Plagans, his piece kind of ends on like, well, lucky that that bastard doesn't have to live there. You know, <laughs> that's how he ends. He's like, some of us others have to live here. This is a harsh place to live. And um, I think I see mm-hmm. that coming from other places. You know, you get so used to a place, you can't see it very well, but then I'll come mm-hmm. back from other cities that have, like, workable public transit um, or where you're not isolated in your car all the time. And then suddenly mm-hmm. it's, like, oh, very striking that all the criticism yeah. about LA is true. And and I'm just so inured to it because I get really in my groove when I'm here and I start to lose sight of, like, how you know, dysfunctional mm-hmm. it is. So Plagan's argument is very, you know, valid in my opinion. Sure. I mean, it do, it did have um, something of the anger at 
LA to it that <laughs> was maybe being sort of routed through um, his author. But I want to take up that thread that you've just laid down, though, around how difficult it can be to write about a place or use it even as a backdrop to the writing you're doing when you're too close to it. Um, this is a problem for the entire country that I live in, seemingly. <laughs> um, I wonder how that functions in your practice. I, I gather you're prolific. You are not sort of reserving yourself for particular beats, whether they be book reviews or um, or writing that explores, you know, artistic profiles. I see you being quite protean in your in your ability and adaptable and curious. But I wonder how you see your beat. And within that, if there is a kind of responsibility you feel to depicting LA or taking up its its depiction in the writing that you're doing. Uh, yeah, I guess I mean I, I do see that I have like a few different things I'm interested in, you know, um broadly in Los Angeles and its art history and its kind of current, I don't really do that much like straight journalism anymore if I ever really did, but I used to do a bit more of like covering local planning issues, you know, for this small publication I used to write for here. Um, So I was talking to local officials more often about public space. Um, So I, I do think, yes, something about the dream of what could be in Los Angeles or what I think would be better or I am curious. um, Mm. I am curious about kind of how decisions are made and also this maybe even in terms of what I'm saying is this kind of back and forth between doomsday and boosterism that seems to have haunted this city Mm -hmm. um, in particular. Los Angeles in some ways and learning about it was also a fulcrum to kind of larger issues that I I believe plague the whole country. I believe plague institutions. It it was, I think, learning about the corruption and mishandling of the city here is kind of what primed me for realizing that these problems exist everywhere. And so though I can't say that that's really like a major focus of my writing, it's it's certainly an interest and in terms of abuses of power and like often, you know, that certain people are not given the full breadth of the, of their depth, what, whoever they may be. I mean, even for the piece I wrote for Momus about sex workers, you know, is writing about kind of these preconceptions of, of sex workers Um uh, I feel like there's some carryover of trying to just clarify, not swallow these mm-hmm. chestnuts whole, and give more yes. uh, give more ground to whatever I'm I'm writing about. Yeah, yeah, that's a really nice self depiction. I would I would totally agree with that. Um, and I also wonder how you're seeing the shape of what you've produced through the LA Review of Books 10 years on in the LA, I mean, I'm I'm trying to avoid the word discourse too much because God knows there's not just one ever, but, but right. 10 years is a significant arc. And as one of the founding editors, I, I wonder how you can see if you can get enough distance to, to recognize what it started or set in motion or, or how that conversation has developed in, in the communities in which you're participating? Yeah, I mean, I think that Los Angeles is a place where it's very, you know, it used to be easier to be a writer here um, because there 
there was the LA Weekly, there was a, a more robust LA Magazine, there was lots of, there was the New Times, there was a lot more publications um, when I was growing up, uh, and the, those have vanished. And there was also, I don't know if the LA Times still has the LA Times Magazine, I don't even think it does. So, I mean, as much as, you know, New York is always going to be the heart of the publishing world, you could, now more and more, it's like where where does one even place a local LA story? Like if there's something happening, could you write about mm-hmm. it locally that it doesn't, not that many places exist for that here. Um, so I think that wow. that is the one, like the LA Review of Books has given people a place to write. That's, you know, that's the number one accomplishment in my opinion is that <laughs> yeah, like, <period>. um, <laughs> you could, it's, yes, it is a, it is a place. And of course the contributors are all over the world, but it's, it's also a place where you could pitch something about a, some local happening, a local writer that might not have the national attention yet where you could make a case for something being worthy of a book review or a profile, whatever. Um, so I mm-hmm. think that that is mm-hmm. incredibly important. And I, I really lament the fact that there aren't more publications in LA um, that, and that the industry yeah. seems, you know, just seems really difficult right now. Well, that's it. And I was revisiting the mission and I don't know how, you know, that mission has been updated or if it has, but it's it's always interesting to think of it almost as an artifact that sparks, you know, publication. And within that, it sounded like you were responding to, you and your peers were responding to a dearth. And, I, and I'm curious if that is the same dearth 10 years later, if it's shape-shifted at all. I know personally in art criticism, I was responding to a very similar absence, both in Canada and internationally, of stakeholding criticism and slowed, a slowed down and more vigorously supported form of online um, engagement with contemporary art. And 10 years later, I would say that the, the coordinates of that aren't quite where they were, even if, you know, new challenges have cropped up. I, f- I feel like there's actually kind of a a very populated field right now. It's just that they're smaller, they're precariously run, they're independently run, which is, of course, a, a blessing as well. Um, as one who's running her own independently, I can attest that's like the favored choice. But I, I guess I'm just trying to wend my way to asking about, you know, how do you see what you were responding to 10 years ago um, now is it the same? Is it the same sort of animus, or has it shifted? Um, yes, I, I mean, I, I, I do think there have been, I guess, in the last ten years, and I haven't. I'm, I'm certainly no expert in the kind of boom and bust of all these online sites. Um, you know, that gave people opportunities to write, and then one by one, have shuttered here in the United States. Um, I I feel like maybe at the onset of when the LA Review of Books launched, you know, from that point, the 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 landscape of online criticism and writing really flourished and has and has yeah. since kind of retracted a bit. Um, and we don't benefit from the same kind of you know robust funding that Canadians have. I believe we don't have robust. <laughs> oh, really? I'm sorry. I just pictured Canada as paradise. I'm like, they have everything there. They got their healthcare. The grass they is got definitely their- greener. Yeah, yeah. I think of the U.S. as having their shit together in terms of arts funding, actually, by comparison. Wow. God. Well, I guess I'm not moving to Canada then. Yeah. Um, I don't. I mean, yes. The, the LA Review of Books is uh, has been 
you know, lucky and has gotten a, a good number of grants. I'm not involved with, you know, applying for those grants. And so I can't really speak to how difficult it has been to, but I mean, funding is the consistent problem. And I think um, for yeah. the landscape of people also who are critics, who are writing, you know, funding is the consistent problem, that it's really hard to file enough pieces to make anything like resembling a living and um, seems like pay is kind of shrinking as opposed to rising uh, often in a lot of magazines. So um, I, I think that in, in some ways, I don't want to say the field is not the exact same as when LA Review of Books started, but I, I, I can't say it feels radically different at this point than when we started. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. I mean, within the last two months or three months anyway, there's been a huge sort of falling off of, you know, catapults. Just two days ago, the White Review, not that that's in the States, mind you, but, you know, the there are only so many platforms in the literary review section. Yeah. <laughs> so exactly. to lose a few, Astra, um, Real Life, and of course, Book Forum had this uh, phoenix yes. rising from the ashes yes. moment, thank God. Yes. But, yeah, it's been pretty. Um, yeah, it's been pretty bumptious. I was even trying to look something up the other day, uh, which was from the Believer magazine. Yeah, and I, I can't remember. Oh, I think it was a Sarah Manguso interview of Lydia Davis, um, and mm-hmm. it's the the they don't own their archives anymore, and their archives are on some bizarre website. Um, so you can't find mm-hmm. anything for that the magazine published online right now. So yes, there's just been a lot of selling. I mean, there's been a lot of financial calculations. I think it's hard. It's just not, Yeah, doesn't seem, I'm still wondering, you know, how to make it a lucrative, is it ever a lucrative business or is it always just that you have to have people supporting it um, who don't care about a return on their investment and who are willing to lose money? Well, I, I, I loathe the ROI talk when it creeps into talk of publishing because isn't a returning reader or a reader who who finds their way to a book or an exhibition or even just a Google search of what you've just been writing about, the return that sufficiently we're hoping for. That has always felt like enough of an end to me, but it seems to, you know, in, in our capitalist-driven productivity urge, we're not thinking about publishing in the same way anymore. yeah. I think it's that that difficult balance of wanting an ecosystem to be sustainable on its own terms, and then also, uh, of course, you know. And I try to convince I try to convince people of that who have been writing for a long time and maybe haven't found the stability financially or otherwise, or the recognition that they want. That like, mm-hmm. oh, it's it's enough if someone looked up your article and appreciated it, and they and it was helpful and it taught them all these things they didn't know before and it ignited something in them. But, you know, that you can feel removed from that as the writer if you're not getting uh, attention or, you know, if you're not really able to do much because you don't make very much money. So I see it from both sides. I I do think, I, I mean, you know, there's this whole cliche of the suffering artist, the suffering writer, you know, because they don't have, they haven't chosen a certain, you know, financially remunerative path, but they still have decided to stick to what they love or what they mm-hmm. have to do. Um, and that should be, you know, the reward in itself. But I I also feel like it, it, it seems just such like a difficult life. And I don't think that's what we should expect of people who aren't taking 
like the most commercial path that they should just yeah, float without support. Yeah. So, I, I, yeah, it's, I, it, you know, it's just, I think it's just an ongoing debate of how to pay people for their work. And, and, and also, of course, like the other review books, it's a little bit the same thing. It's, I mean, it just is always just squeaking by. So how can they really be upping mm-hmm. their rates? Um, because they don't have a great, you know, stock of cash either. Um, but again, writers deserve to be paid. So how can we do it? So I'm so curious to know about how these various editorial roles play out, both for you as a writer and and in terms of your engagement with this thing that you helped build. Can you first talk, just sort of help me understand what a founding editor would be versus a founding publisher? Um, there was a group of us who, when we were all launching, we kind of worked maybe for about a year, maybe a little bit less than a year. When I joined, at least there had already been people working on it for a couple months before. And so, you know, it was just, I was around in the beginning, putting it together, securing different writers, helping set stuff up. Uh, I didn't become a real, I wasn't like line editing very much in the beginning. And I wasn't commissioning pieces very much in the beginning. Then I became an art edit, the, the art editor. So I had, and then I had about two years of um, commissioning and editing pieces and publishing frequently. And then I pulled back um, and was focusing more on the print magazine and um, commissioning pieces for that. And then I got into this and and then I was kind of more like almost out the door, just going to be editor at large, occasionally bring in pieces. And then I got brought into the podcast. And so that's how, where my involvement Mm -hmm. now really since that beginning of 2017 has, has been mostly focused um, is mm-hmm. is working on the podcast and putting that together and doing interviews. And do you see those interviews as an extension of reviewing or an extension of your work in criticism? Or, or how do you see yeah, those linking up? That's a really good question. I mean, I see it as, I mean, I, I see it as almost closer to the role of editor, which is you're making the decision of what you're going to cover. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's so many books published. What? Why do you choose what you're going to feature. Sometimes it seems like because everyone's talking about it and it just has to be covered by someone. Sometimes it's more of a personal decision. Other times it's because you think the the topic, uh, regardless of kind of the content, is important and should be brought to the fore. Um, so that's... And, and then, of course, as I read the book and, you know, have the questions that I'm going to ask the the writer that seems closer than, or the artist who, or the filmmaker, whoever I'm talking to, that seems then closer to the role of the critic, which is to digest something and see where the paths for me to think about it are. What mm-hmm. what's most important? I mean, there's some just you know, real boilerplate journalism questions you ask anyone that that don't take any thought, and then there's the actual way into whatever you've digested that you you know, that will bring some insight either from the writer, you know, to the listener. Um, so that, yeah, that seems closer it. to uh, criticism to me, but a very loose yeah. form, you know, and it doesn't, and I guess, you know, sometimes I have to write a little bit, like write the intro, you know, write the description of the show, um, but it doesn't have the same angst as writing a piece, which is, 
which can be nice, but then it's also it gets you a little bit soft if you're not like really pushing yourself to write criticism all the time and suffering through it, which I always do. So yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We will get to some rapid fire questions on your on your writing practice in just two, okay. two or three minutes. But before Great. we do, I I wanted to also just touch on this um, an aspect of book reviewing that I find so compelling and maybe animating for the critic in a way that visual arts reviewing can be trickier, at least from where I'm sitting. Um, which is that. Typically, you can't assume of your reader that they've read the book. And so I think that that motivates a different kind of legibility in the critic or a connecting, right? So that beyond itself, we have to, you know, network relevance and meaning out from this unread as of yet, you know, um, book. And and I wonder if you've thought about that as being a kind of animating or unique um, dynamic or challenge that's put to a book reviewer that the that the reader hasn't read the book yeah <laughs> yeah yeah which I've, is often by the way often the case to a visual arts reviewing of course but of we course. assume differently or we allow jpegs to do heavy lifting <laughs> yes i mean i i think that there are some people um who are so wonderful at just describing artwork in really formal terms and i mean i think that that is that is such a gift to me. I mean, that's uh, like what I like to read. I and it's very, very hard to do it clearly to give a sense of what something looks like. To to be really just just distinct about the materials, how it's working. Mm-hmm. Um, I and I and I feel like having some background in art, having made art, you know, you is actually very helpful for that. Where like you you see something, mm-hmm. you don't want to be so inside that you're giving people knowledge that would be irrelevant, but um, mm-hmm. just being good to describe things uh, materially is a real gift with artwork. Sometimes that can be like 90% of what you're doing is just describing, and same with a book, you know, it's like, here's the plot, that's 90, here's yeah. what happens, that's about 90 or 85%, and then you save a little bit for analysis. I, I do think that that's like often the heavy lifting is just giving a sense of what the object is, whether it's a book or yeah. a piece of art. Um, but of course, it's not satisfying only to have description, you need to synthesize it and exactly. kind of... Uh, figure out, you know, how things are either working. I mean, I was thinking how um, I really like to, I have this really dorky habit of watching like kind of mediocre movies from the 80s or whatever, the 70s, and then reading reviews of them directly after. And it it's fairly mm. elucidating because it always shows, you know, I'm like, why is this bad? You know, why isn't this a great film? And um and there's, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, it's totally fine to watch. It's not awful, but there's something that's very just middle of the road about it. And I love to read the way critics will, uh, that that they'll kind of pinpoint what these things are about the film that ring false or that, you know, yeah. and, and so to me, it's almost like that is, it's not necessarily, in, in that case, it's fairly practical for me. It's not that it's even warning me not to see the film. It's that it's um, giving voice to something about a movie that I've intuited but can't quite articulate. You know, why doesn't this work? You know, it's not that it's a value judgment. It's actually really like a kind of mechanics of what went wrong here. And um, 
I think that that is like what I would strive for in any kind of criticism. What went right? Why is this so pristine, sparkling, you know, really hitting me so hard, you know, a little bit more than just a subjective response? There's a formal element of that too. You know, it's not, I don't think it's just about opinion or kind of anointing things uh, because... Of course. Yeah, it's almost philosophical. Um, so that is, I think that's a really super important aspect and that almost mm-hmm. falls in line with description. You know, it's, it, it does describe some of the properties of whatever you're uh, reviewing and, and saying if they work or not or how they don't work or how they do, how they fit together or how they don't. Yeah, yeah. I'm so intrigued by the last line of your bio, by the way, which points to this novel that you're working on to about, I guess the backdrop is LA and it's yeah. a, it's a friendship between mm-hmm. two women. Is there more that you can say or is it maybe too soon to be talking about it? Yeah, maybe I shouldn't talk about it because what if it, it never comes to light, but yes, it is, it's just, <laughs> okay. it's just then I'll just feel so depressed, but um, it's a, it's a story of <laughs> a long friendship between two women and it, it's set in uh, Los Angeles and a bit in New York. And um, it's kind of about these people who come, I mean, speaking of temporary homes, you know, who come together at a very important moment in their lives and then slowly become further and further apart. Um, But something about that initial closeness Mm -hmm. always stays um, despite Mm -hmm. how how much their lives um, become estranged. So it's it's really... Mm -hmm just kind of tracking the synergy between two people over um, a long period of time. And it, and it's really fun. I mean, I think that's, you know, for me to write about Los Angeles way more in the Rainer Bannum, you know, impressionistic, these, you know, uh, there's Peter Plagans also has a great line about like the possibility, like hmm. that's the problem with LA. It's like you smell a little bit of that jasmine and then you're just high again on the possibility <laughs> because the city can be so beautiful. I mean, really it's, it, it can be right. so alluring. Um, that was something I especially felt when I was young, even though I also thought it was just the most boring, you know, dead place ever, and I wanted to get out as fast mm-hmm. as I could. But I think that I, I did get seduced by the landscape um, very strongly, and it really imprinted itself in me. Um, and so it, it always has been hard, in a sense, to get away because in, in other cities, I feel so much more locked in and that like wide open sky, that sunset, you know, the flowering plants, you know, all those things um, really have their, their pull. And um, to kind of be writing about that from the perspective of someone who is young and doesn't have such a critical sense or might mm-hmm. feel, feel certain criticisms, but is also just living in a way more sensuous way um, has been such a, like a beautiful exercise for me. Um, mm-hmm. And I really enjoy it. Wow. I, I, it's a book I can't, just from that description alone, uh, I cannot wait to sort of lower myself into. Oh, so thank you. best of luck with the last stretch, it sounds like. And, and on that note, maybe we'll wrap up with a few rapid fire questions that we put to every writer we speak to about their practice. Um, just try to shoot from the hip. Okay. Um, we'll dive in. Okay. Who do you write for? Mm. She's scrunching up her face. Oh, God. Listeners that's, a really, that's a very difficult question. Um, I mean, it's such a hard question because it sometimes when I'm writing, it feels like I'm writing for 
certain teachers I've had, I hear their critical voices in my head. Um, but yes, ultimately, yes. I know that through my experience, it's like, oh, or, you know, I'm writing for an editor, can't wait to just like send off the piece and get it to them and have them tell me it's good. But I, I think through now, <laughs> a lot of years of doing this, I know that the kind of peace I have after I finish something or the fulfillment I feel on a day, even if I'm writing like a paragraph, I know that really it is for myself. It's for the the mm-hmm. pleasure and this the, the kind of sense of purpose it gives me. You know, I sometimes I think it's for posterity, you know, n- noting things down, but I also know that no one is going to care about like what happened with my son or mother that day. It's it's only going to be me years later who is going to say, "Wow, I'm so glad I I noted this because now I can remember it." Yes. Wow. Thank you for saying that. That that really that's a very stirring response. There's this record and the day falls away from it, but you know, something is is held in amber even if it's a minute observation. Do you ever write under the influence of drugs or alcohol? Whatever influence. Yeah, or anything jazz huffing jasmine on the street apparently is one of the things <laughs> that you might be susceptible to. Oh, if only I could <laughs> Get a get a good uh, start with some jasmine. Oh yes, for sure. Yes, I do. I'm. I uh, I have many aids. I have to say. Um, unfortunately, thank you for yes, that too. Yes, that's refreshing. Uh, yeah. Which writer, dead or alive, would you like to have a drink with? Boy, uh, well, that's a difficult one. I mean, recently I've been a real on a real Natalia Ginsburg kick, the Italian writer. Yeah, who's so funny and uh, folksy and human. And um, Mm. I would like to, you know, talk to her and meet her. I I, I don't, sometimes when Mm -hmm. you meet writers that you really respect, especially, you know, ones who have a cold penetrating eye, um, doesn't always turn out. (laughs) Uh, exactly as you imagined, but uh, I think it would be. I still, I still, I wouldn't care if she made me feel dumb. I'd still love to to meet her, as, and I wish I could. That's a great answer. Yeah, yeah, good one. Um, and this this might be the same answer, but um, which writer do you find you emulate the most? And that might be lately versus historically or whatever. Right. Uh... Right by my computer, I have a stack of books of, you know, some of them are like these perpetual inspirations like Natalia Ginsburg and Dennis Cooper. And I see also I have uh, Lydia Davis here, Annie Arnaud, Pavese. They're people who, when I feel stuck, uh, Leonard Michaels, when I feel stuck, I'll just page open their books. So that it's kind of like, nice. a, it's a it's a long, long list of I, I, and it and it and it does change, um, but I think it's it's yeah. it's about reading people that make you feel for whatever reason, even if they're such a thousand times better than you, that mm-hmm. you can write. Um, so I think it's for me, it's people with a plainer style um, makes yeah. me feel that somehow I'm I can do it. You know, they're not exactly they're beautiful writers, but they're not these like word wizards. Yeah, that economy can contain a lot of strength. It, yes. it needs to be reminded. Yes. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, again, I really love that answer. And I like the idea of sort of doing bumps <laughs> as you sort of cuffing the jasmine, doing bumps and bumps. <laughs> just yeah. another half of the <laughs> old jasmine. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta get a bump of my book going, yeah. <laughs> Under the influence, always. Yeah, for sure. There you go. Yeah. I'll ask just two more. What is the text you want to write, but no, you won't? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I feel like I confront that all the time. Um, I, you know, with either like articles that I really want to write. And a lot of that is maybe more just basic journalism. You know, this week uh, I had an idea for a story, but it would take a lot of work. I'd have to talk to a lot of different people. I'd have to pitch it. Like, and suddenly I'm like, wow, this is, uh, it's, that's, (laughs) it's, uh, it comes into my head and then it's gone. I mean, I think I have a lot of ideas for stories and that's also the editor in me where I'm like, I would love to just be able to, you know, assign this to someone because this should be covered. I have thousands yeah. of ideas, and um, actually my yes. capacity is very small. But, you know, it's exposés, takedowns, politics, deep dives into whatever. I mean, I, I don't know if I would never write a story like that, but just a more like straight nonfiction narrative um, mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. seems elusive. Uh, but I would like to, to write something like mm-hmm. that for sure. Nice. Well, now you have profile. Many witnesses. Profile of Jennifer Aniston. Oh. Uh, there's a lot of. <laughs> I always up. wanted to write a profile of Jennifer Aniston. Yeah, the Kardashians. That's another one I really oh want God. to write a profile of. Um, the Kardashians or like yeah, profile slash personal response and just go really deep. I mean, personal probably, response. Oh yeah. Oh, I've, I have so many. You have thoughts. so many readers. Like. Yeah. <laughs> just chomping at the bit I know, for that piece. yeah, I know. Can I, I say, I did some diving around your writing, and I found a piece that was exactly written for me. I think it was 2011. You you were writing about Us Magazine and the oh. experience of nice. feeling, yes. feeling seen in the pages of They're Just Like Us, yeah. <laughs> or the complicated kind of interpersonal you know, dynamic that's being implied through that. So anyway, I just loved that. And I I would love to see you continue to explore Um, celebrity culture. Oh my God. Yeah. That's what I really want (laughs) to get more into because that is my secret, my dirty, dirty (laughs) secret. How much of my day is given over to checking the websites. Um, So yeah. Me too. It's a soothing mechanism at this point. It sure is. There we go. We found each other. Yes. Another (laughs) of my influences. Yeah. The the huffing of TMZ all day long. Yeah. (laughs) Shoot it up like H Dog. That's how I do it. And little bumps are enough. Absolutely. You gotta get away from it. No, if you go too deep, you get like you overdose real quick. Covered. Yeah. Covered in oil. Yes. 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 I feel so seen. Um Okay, our last question to you. Okay. What is the pleasure of writing? I I mean, there's so many pleasures um, as, you know, as there are many pains, but I think the pleasure of writing is unwinding a thought, you know, un, un, uh, unwinding an opinion, a uh, point of view that is latent inside of you and can kind of become fully expressed. Um, that especially mm-hmm. in, in criticism, you know, I, I, that is so amazing to me when I really am able to kind of figure out what I think on paper. The kind of yeah. closing, shutting like mechanism that your brain sometimes furnishes for you, where something becomes a story, where it was just 
you know, something that happened totally open-ended and then you are able to make mm-hmm. it into a story both by grammar, um, by kind of a, a very minute plotting, you know, this this mm-hmm. turn of the key in the door mm-hmm. um, is like, to me, is immensely pleasurable, satisfying. And, if you know, maybe it's kind of escapist to have that small amount of completion in your in your day, mm-hmm. but it feels really good to... yeah figure out a resolution to something that is very pleasurable. And I think just, yeah, and also this kind of sharpened way of looking at things. I mean, I, I, um, I feel like I waste a lot of time looking online, looking at these websites that we're joking about, the TMZ, mm-hmm. looking at other people's, what they're doing, you know, um, and to really sit and, you know, especially when it's like with a paper and pencil and just slow down to that degree and to kind of see something really, really sharply is like still, you know, that's, it's, that's still just a really pleasurable activity for me, which makes actually like sends positive brainwaves through my head. It really slows me down, which makes me feel calm, which makes me feel good. Momus the Podcast is produced by Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. Jacob Irish is our editor. And many thanks to Kate Wolf for her contribution to this season. If you like the show, please think about supporting us through reviews or sharing or uh, a monthly donation as small as $1 or $3 at patreon.com backslash art. <laughs> yeah, if Jerry Saltz wants to make some amends, he can certainly... That's exactly where we direct him before he gets off the stage. <laughs> we should tie him. We'll wrap it right up with a Patreon donation. <laughs> Jerry, that support would make a huge difference to our very small team. It goes directly to my gym membership so that I can be a 40-year-old woman. <laughs> but you... <laughs> would be pleased to receive an attentive <laughs> blowjob from. <laughs> God, we got to get out of this episode. If you would okay. like to learn more about supporting moments, feel free to contact me personally, Jerry, about making a donation <laughs> at skygooden at momus.ca. This has been episode 48 of Momus the Podcast. <laughs>